everyone. Welcome to the AMT Tech Trends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. Today's episode is sponsored by AM Radio. I am Benjamin Moses, the Director of Technology, and I'm here with... Glamarca Stephen, Tech Analyst. <laughs> Steve, I don't know why I'm reading a sheet from a sheet of paper for the intro. I know my name. I know my title. <laughs> Dude, no. Listen, listen. I remember those first few episodes that we did, but the ones that didn't even air, yeah. the ones that we were doing for practice yep. and for research and to figure out how viable <laughs> this was going to be as a AMT product, even three months into like our, our first few episodes, like, no... A year or two in, we were still struggling with our names. <laughs> Don't know. Do I not a, give yourself. And, and plus, it looks official having the paper in front of you. <laughs> I'm officially a news guy now. Yes. Uh, inflation. We, we were briefly chatting about that earlier. Dude. Okay. I, I feel. So like, all right, people listening. Please don't close the podcast just yet. Hear me <laughs> out. Hear me out. Because no, nobody wants to hear about all this negativity. But, you know, in, inflation's pretty high right now. A bit. I, I a bit. might be hot as. It might be the highest it's been in my lifetime. Sure. Honestly, I don't know because when I was younger, like we're talking before 20s, I really didn't care. <laughs> I had no money anyway. Right. Um, but uh, so so the reported inflation rate for the U.S. is like between 7.9 and 8.6 percent. Sure. Um, my best friend's super conservative dad is like, you think it's 8.6? You're you're kidding yourself. <laughs> it's more like 12 to 16. Have you bought a bag of potato chips recently? <laughs> Cape Cod potato chips have went up a dollar in price and they went down in size from eight ounces to seven and a half ounces. And I was like, dude, <laughs> save your money. Like, I'm the last person who should be telling you to not be so peckish. Yeah. yeah. But like, how about you just don't buy potato chips? <laughs> there. So there's a uh, scenario where this has f- affected me. Okay. So like Tuesday nights are is it's our the f- snacks, man. It is snack. It yeah. should affect the peckishness. A Tuesday night is our fast food night of okay. the week. So it helps logistics because uh, <gasps> Amelia has gymnastics. Yeah. So I'm running home to uh, get dinner and then get her to <laughs> gymnastics on time, which is a headache. So we just get fast food and just call it. That's the only time we get. It's a treat. It's a treat, right? Yeah. Uh, she gets a nice dessert. Um, they see it, it as a treat. You see it as oh, this is easy. And she picks the location of the fast food based on the <gasps> dessert she wants. So she's nice. already plotting, but. Went to uh, a week ago, um, the bill for three of us, $30 for fast food. Wow. Yeah. So it's either crazy, man. price increases or inflation there, it's uh, it's hitting hard. Don't ask me how I know. I got a lot of experience with how much uh, fast food's gone up, though, <laughs> from like the college days and yeah. like the early like 2010s when I'd, I'd go out with like my, my high school friends when I'd come back in town. Yep. We'd just like, we'd do a $5 baller, right. which was, right. you know, two McChickens, two McDoubles. And maybe like a small drink because, yep. you know, you're feeding at the restaurant because you don't want to be driving at that hour, <laughs> especially after what you've done. Um, you know, you want to sit in the restaurant so you get free refills. So just get the small five dollars. Yep. Two burgers, two chicken sandwiches and a drink. Yep. These days, if you did the same thing. <laughs> That's probably $12. I enjoy everyone's dollar menu, by the way. I don't order meals. I, I just go. <laughs> I, do they still exist anywhere? Not even McDonald's. It's, it's shady. So they have like a two for three menu. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's a dollar menu anymore. And plus, I I question food that's a dollar that I know Fair a few enough. things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I should probably be questioning more uh, food that I put in my body. <laughs> but um, anyway, I, I did run across some more interesting numbers, like just looking yeah. at the inflation percentages. Um, if, if, if just, just, you know, to sort of like mellow things out, if you think we've got it bad, right. which there's a lot of people who think we've got it bad and we do, I'm not trying to like sure. offset that, but like 
Argentina is at 68.5% inflation right now. This is, these are 2022 numbers. Yep. Venezuela, mm-hmm. guess. A thousand. Okay. <laughs> right. I don't know. 96. <laughs> like almost that's, 100. That, you may as well say you're at 100% inflation right now. Um, Turkey is at 68.4. But like, you know, it's not all bad around the world. Sure. Um, some, some of the countries on the low. I'm sure there's also a negativity to a low inflation. But. I don't know what that's like right now. Right. Um, but on the low end, um, there's Ecuador and Bolivia, which are at like 2.7 and 2.8 respectively. Malaysia's at 2.8. Australia, you know, the big robot guys, big shipbuilders, yeah. you know, big manufacturing right now, 5.2. So that's what big manufacturing, advanced manufacturing implementation does for you. We, If we had more manufacturing going on, just saying we'd have a lower <laughs> inflation rate. Um, Israel yep. is at 3.7, but that's because of American Christians love giving them all the money. Um, Saudi Arabia is at 2.4. Japan, 1.9. Wow. They make the best vehicles. <laughs> that explains it. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, but I'm not going to mention has, the last one. We ha- don't like them. Has this affected your hobbies? Because you recently talked about something that you did. So I never thought it would. Sure. And I took pride that like all of like, you know, I, I like being a pompous jerk. <laughs> and I like Fair. saying that, you know, I'm not a pleb. I don't buy I don't buy regular gas. I buy <laughs> premium. Right. Premiums. It's spicy, like, yeah. like you think yeah. regular gas is spicy right now. Premium yeah. gas is, is up there. And admittedly, I am driving my car less. Right. I am not going for as many joy rides. Sure. And I'm not taking like the long way home. Right. Anymore or yep. the long way to work. Right. Like, you know, it's it's I'm taking direct routes now. And it, it kind of say, however, <laughs> however, Here amongst the highest gas prices that we've had right. in like as long as I've been alive. I went to my first track day. Oh, congratulations. And I burnt the gas going <laughs> nowhere. And it was amazing. Nice. Um, what track did you go to? I went to Dominion Raceway. Yep. So it's just, it's around like where King's Dominion is. Go figure. Sure. Um, so north of Richmond, but you have to take 95 south. Right. It's it's I, around Fredericksburg. I think the, the actual county is Woodford, Virginia. Sure. Like the bourbon, but in Virginia instead of Kentucky. Um, and uh, it was, it was. It's it like was a, incredible. Like, so my, I, I'll be honest, going back to being a pompous jerk. Sure. Um, I didn't expect much from the track okay. because I'm like, I, I, I play a lot of Gran Turismo. It's not a well-known track. It's never been in Gran Turismo. I've right. never heard of it before. Right. E- as, even though it's, you know, relative, like, like less than two hours away from here. Right. Uh, so I was like, this isn't going to be fun, but you know, it's only, it's only a hundred dollars. Let's sure. go for, you know, a little bit. It was awesome. <laughs> it's probably like the professionals there, the people that sure. work there were incredibly professional. Yeah. Safety or like safety first oriented. Right. Which you would hope they would be. But also like really awesome. Good old boy gearheads, too. <laughs> of course. So like, you know, they, with, with just the safety first mentality. Right. I will say the track was incredible. OK. Um, Like a, just everything that you like super technical. Sure. A really long front straight high speed sweepers, hairpins. Like they have something for everybody. Nice. Um, I would say that the elevation change of the track wasn't that extreme, but you know, beggars can't be choosers. Were there any blind uh, hills? I don't like that. Um, I think there's one. So, so I don't think there was. Maybe there was like one small blind hill. Okay. But it wasn't. Too, it's we're not talking like the corkscrew at Laguna Seca. That's fair. Okay. Um, 
And and what else? Oh, it did have what I really liked about the track is going going there, having never been on a track before and knowing my weaknesses right. in, in performance driving. Yep. I greatly dislike uh, decreasing radius turns. Yeah, that's like, like fair. turns that get tighter Tire, as you yeah. go through them. Yeah, that's I, a- I became really comfortable with them. Oh, good. And at least I learned this one instance yeah. of a yeah. decreasing, but it was cool. Like yep. I've as as much as I put I uh, push uh, the video game experience. I've never been good at decreasing radius yep. turns in video games. I feel like I got really good at this one decreasing radius turn at this track IRL and <laughs> in real life. And it was just, it was just a blast. It was a hundred dollars yep. for what was called a track attack. Nice. So it wasn't like an open track day. There was no passing allowed. Right. There was no tech inspection required, no required to wear a helmet because everybody was following. There was like, I think 25 cars okay. showed up. Um, so they needed three pace cars. They split up the 25 car pack okay. and they had three pace cars. And the group, the first group that I was in, um, you basically do, you go out for, they say five laps, but it's really seven laps. Right. You go out. The first lap is like a warm up lap, getting used to the track, getting used to being back on the track, even if you know the track, um, just getting things up to temperature. Yep. Then five laps of. A good pace. Yeah. More than enough for me. Sure. I mean, there were Corvettes and like, you know, modern BMW M3s and M4s that right. my car can't keep up with that <laughs> stuff. So even though they're doing like a gentle jog around the track, right. I am pushing it in my car. <laughs> and it was a blast good. for me. I'm sure it was really boring for them, but it was yeah. great for me. As long as you had fun. Um, I ran all the curbs. I spent a hundred dollars <laughs> on that track attack. Yeah. I'm going to use the whole track. Yeah. I loved, I, and I told, you know, I went with Dayton and his younger brother, Taryn. And I was like, dude, I'm running curbs. All I care about <laughs> today is running curbs. Good. I do it all the time in video games. Never done it. IRL. I'm running curbs today. But, um, yeah. So you go out for a warm up lap, then you do five laps at a good pace. Um, and then one cool down lap. Yeah. Cool down laps are very important. Right. I will say this. One thing that I learned riding motorcycles, especially doing group rides, yep. also applies to track days in a car. If you're in the back of your pack, right. you definitely work harder. Oh, yeah. The front. Yeah. And you don't experience enough of the positives of the cool down lap. Fair. Because like the cool down lap, a lot of people think I certainly went into. Uh, this track day thinking that the cool down lap was to allow the engine to cool down. Nope. No, it's allowing nope. your brakes to cool down Correct. Correct. because if you're pushing in the brakes really hard, which you are on a track and then you come into the pit and come to a complete stop. If you don't do a cool down lap, especially with street pads yep. and rotors, the pads and rotors can actually fuse together right. and like glue themselves and then it leaves a really nasty mark on the rotor yeah. that feels like you have rope or warped rotors. Right. And and so the cool down laps necessary and you don't get nearly as much of that if you're in the back because you're pushing it to yeah. keep up. Right. Especially if like there's fast cars directly behind the pace car. Sure. Then the pace car is being pressured to go faster right. to make sure that they're not bored. And you as a slow car like me, <laughs> well, me in the slow car is I'm really pushing it just to keep yeah. them in sight. Nice. But it was a blast. Good. How, and Good. we did. Um, um, three stints of okay. those five lap sessions. So well worth a hundred dollars. Nice. I'll have to keep that in mind. I recommend uh, doing some autocrosses at some point too. Those are a blast. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do an autocross. All right. Tell us about our sponsor today. I'm not, I'm not going to spend an entire day of my weekend <laughs> to drive for 15 minutes in a parking lot with cones. 
all right, all right, you know, maybe I'll do it because I could do. Could you learn do? I could use some some learning experience with the the mechanics and the technicals. Today's sponsor is AM Radio. AM Radio is the new podcast from Additive Manufacturing Media. Join editors Pete Zielinski, Stephanie Hendrickson, and Julia Heider as they share stories of companies succeeding with 3D printing today, talk about emerging trends, and discuss the future opportunities and potential for AM in the context of the larger manufacturing landscape. New episodes are published every other week. Subscribe now on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tune into Additive. Thanks, Steve. The first article I have is actually on additive. Heard up. Uh, it's from Popular Mechanics. Uh, the Navy is using 3D printers to turn warships into weapon factories. That's a little misleading. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the military has been doing a lot of experimentation with additive, particularly uh, printing at um, as close to point of use as possible. Mm. Uh, so they put a, um, they call it a high-speed printer, but they have a printer on a USS Essex, which is a uh, amphibious uh, assault ship. <clears throat> And uh, what they're experimenting is printing replacement parts for drones. So this uh, warship is used for um, uh, amphibious assaults by the Marines and it's operated by the Navy. And they're thinking of extending the service life. So the, uh, all the equipment and all the supplies, I think it has to su- support 5,000 troops for like 30 days or something like that. So that includes all their accessories and uh, support equipment. Uh, so I think they're uh, testing out you know, if a blade on a drone breaks. Right. Mm. How do you replace that? And so instead of having basically 30 days worth of drone parts, you know, just printed as needed. So this raises a very interesting question because, um, uh, one, you know, physically printing on a ship, it's very interesting because the ship right. is moving. Right. So then you have to uh, isolate the movement of the ship versus the printer. So there's right. a lot of logistics and mechanics involved to uh, support just the, the process of the printing. There's also the larger ecosystem of how do you get the data to uh, and the information to the ship? Right. Yeah. Are they storing stuff locally? I'm sure they have a uh, broadband connection for the mm-hmm. ship. The communication is <laughs> probably pretty solid, but like, but where are they st- and what are the rights managements for storing this information? And, mm. you know, the second, what's the economy for supporting this? You know, are they paying uh, someone? Obviously, they're paying for the printer, but who owns the IP for recreating this part right. uh, on the machine? So this is a very interesting article about, you know, at the very uh, tactical level of yeah. doing some stuff very forward, but this raises a very interesting questions on, you know, data rights management and, you know, the economy and cybersecurity, right? Right. They're doing, and these are drones and they're the senses, but if it starts with drones, right. But how do they securely transfer this information? How do they know that the part that they're printing is the correct part? Cause we have yeah. talked about, uh, cybersecurity attacks where they're printing, uh, they're attacking parts by embedding flaws into the the parts to see if they can make defects and so they fail in the field and things like that. So yeah. this creates a, a very good technology demonstrator of all the enabling technologies that have to be dragged along with um, being able to do this. And I, I I thought it was a very good good article. I, I think it's awesome for two reasons. Um, number one, we had that article not too long ago about um, it was Optimec that right. got secured a contract to um, – uh, at least research 3D printing metal AM and and to repair or produce uh, the titanium blisks to yeah, be used yeah. in the F-35. That's right. So military application. Um, and then on top of this, like, you know, I remember one of the first phone calls I fielded working for AMT was this uh, this this good old boy who had like this machine shop of like full of like collectible antique maybe not antique but like 
old manual machine tools sure. and he was trying to offload some leblon blades <laughs> and he's like he pulled them from a warship right an old warship like world war ii era warship and it was like so so the navy mm-hmm. like when you speak about like ship like on board a naval vessel for metal am it's cool because the navy's not new to this yeah. like like they've right. been all naval ships at least u.s navy ships have some sort of machine shop on right. board and it's cool that they are implementing additive so you know sure implementation has been really tough right. with a lot of um actual manufacturers but sometimes the military does stuff first to get other people <laughs> to accept it and open right. up to it yeah and additive might be the case for that the other cool thing is speaking to that um it would be really sick to somehow find out a hundred years from now, hundred plus years from now, uh, there are military surplus metal additive <laughs> machines that people are just trying to get rid of. Yeah, that's fair. That'd be a interesting prominence to the uh, equipment that you're purchasing. Yeah, I mean, tell me about uh, Cobots. You got one on uh, toolware measurement. Yeah, I got a great article from Metrology News. They never disappoint. Yep. Cobot increases efficiency in toolware measurement. Um. So this cobot implementation is a robotic arm that is uh, designed to increase the efficiency of tool wear measurement. The arm is equipped with a laser that is used to measure the wear on cutting tools. Uh, the laser is able to take measurements of the tool wear at a rate of one measurement per second, uh, which isn't the highest, but sure. it's still pretty quick. Um the information is then sent to a computer that analyzes the data and provides a report of the tool wear. So Let's start with the role of toolware in the machining process. Toolware is like a huge topic because it's one of the primary concerns with any shop of any size or level uh, dealing with trying to save money. How can we make the tool last longer? How can we continue to produce parts that pass inspection and get as little defects as possible, mm-hmm. you know, in the name of saving money and making profit. Well, um, it, it also just to add, I mean, it's about our process confidence level, right? Sure. So, you know, you know, your tool is going to degrade, but when yes. does it degrade and when does it shift to making a bad part? Right. So it, it's all about process yeah. capability too. And, and a quote that I pulled from that I really like is toolware plays a crucial role in the machining processes. Um, it affects tool costs for companies and has a, I like this part because it literally has a direct impact on surfaces. And (laughs) I just thought that was fun. That's fair. Um, Another thing positive about this clamping and unclamping is no longer necessary. The cobot uh, system can be moved directly up to the machine tool. Therefore the technician does not have to unclamp tools and materials separately. Uh Um, And then uh, this kind of plays into focus variation allows highly precise measurements. And uh, by combining the, the the products of several companies that make the system, um, high resolution 3D data sets can be generated, which allow users to make measurements in the micro and nanometer range. Yep. I liked that because obviously that's very good for tolerance and accuracy which is something that is a great, as you and I know, is a great weakness for robots. Yep. There's only one company that we know of that anybody knows of that publishes accuracy for their robot arms or robots in general. And it's not good. It's not a good number, (laughs) but but, it's published. But the fact that it's published shows that they can consistently achieve that number, which is at least they're the benchmark. Right. 
if you can do better than publish it and, <laughs> and say that you can beat them. But yeah. like, but accuracy is not a strong point for robots is what sure. I'm trying to get at. Along comes optical measurement. Yep. It's okay. The robot doesn't need to be accurate because, <laughs> because the, the laser is sure. sure. And, and it's got your, and the camera is so, sure. so I, I just, it's a happy marriage. Yeah. And not, not only just the underlying technology to achieve that, but the um, improvement to the shop floor. Right. So if you're doing, I mean, uh, if you have a tool probe, right. Right. So when you put in the first uh, tool for the first time and check to see the, um, what the profile is and the actual uh, diameter of the cutter and things like that, yeah. you know, the getting to the concept of first part, correct is very interesting. And there's a lot of underlying technology to say everything I predicted and I'm going to start cutting chips. And I have like 90% confidence that the part is going to be correct. Mm-hmm. Carry that to the life of, or the entire lot size. So from part 100, from part zero to part 100, having that same confidence throughout the process. So mm-hmm. being able to say after 10 parts, let's check the, check the cutter. Does it need yeah. to be changed? Right. This is super important. I mean, obviously everyone that's cutting is super important, but if you get into like super alloys or very difficult materials. Yeah. And the robot may know how to use the c- camera yep. better than a human can. Yeah. So like, sure. I, I know I mentioned in the happy marriage between the camera, the high resolution camera laser and the robot. I right. think that the high resolution camera and the laser is is saving the robot because right. it does have bring accuracy to the robot, which does not have any accuracy. But the robot actually makes the camera better because let's say you need a really small camera to yep. fit in that tight space. And that smaller camera only has a focal range mm-hmm. of adjustment that's so long. Guess what? The camera can move. <laughs> that's right. Because it's on a robot. Yep. Uh, and the robot can move all more, certainly more precisely than a human can. Sure. Yep. So... There's a lot it's, of it's a really beneficial cool system. Yeah. I'm looking forward to see how that uh, propagates uh, through the rest of uh, the industry. So I've got a couple articles. They're kind of quick before we get to your Steve. So I've okay. got one on robots aren't done reshaping warehouses. Mm. So it's an article from the New York Times and it talks about the uh, further growth of automation, particularly with rare warehouse robots. But the overall larger concept of automation, they have a, a couple of key points that they brought about. And, you know, one, they talk about the uh, pace of change for the technologies for automation itself. So the past couple of years have driven a lot of demand for automation. So uh, our automation members within AMT um, and integrators, they've talked about the level of demand has only increased over the past couple of years, um, much more than uh, previous years. And, Mm. you know, going into the pandemic, they're very, like everyone else, very concerned about uh, potential drop-offs in the market. Uh, But no, they were able to sustain and uh, produce above their previous plans. uh, And, They've only seen continued growth from there. So there's a need from the market for automation. Some of the supply chain issues have hurt their ability to produce, but overall, they still see a high market demand for automation. And uh, there's been a couple of shifts that the New York Times talks about, and uh, the cost of some of the underlying technologies have dropped significantly. So being able to produce produce a a piece of equipment that has some type of intelligence. So to your point, like robots in general – um, accuracy and repeatability can be tough, right? Especially for something that's more flexible or um, not grounded to uh, well, a static Well, precision place. and re- repeatability, robots are the best at. Sure. But accuracy, sure. getting to the exact point where you want to be the first time right. and the only time, no. Right. But so now there have now a lot of technologies that allow closed loop. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to rely on the structure and the motors, but allows to say, I'm going here. Did I achieve there? Right. So vision yeah. capability, machine learning to uh, support that. Um, 
has been able to uh, permeate the market a little bit better. Um, and also they talk about um, uh, the intent of designing the warehouse. So the past couple of years, the warehouse was actually designed around what's capable for warehouse robots, right? So uh, really bright lights, tracks on the floor, mm. um, how things are stored on shelves. And you'll continue to see that trend, uh, you know, especially if you, that's all they do, like FedEx or uh, Amazon or Walmart. If all they have is just warehouse and they're supporting um, basically uh, product uh, uh, placement, um, and fulfillment, fulfillment, um, it's going to, there's going to be, there's, there's going to be a high level of a design around the warehouse itself, but there's a significant shift for more flexible robots. So if I have an old factory that maybe there's no air conditioning, maybe it's like a hundred degrees in a normal day, obviously you don't want employees digging around trying to find parts. Right. right? Like, like, like one of the biggest users of, you know, build one of the biggest culprits better said of just making a brand new factory, a yep. perfect factory for whatever robot you have to be able to do its job. Amazon. Right. Exactly. You know, Amazon lives by the Amazon mentality right. of just buy a new one. Right. Just whatever. Buy a new one. Amazon does the same thing with their own factories. Right. You know, there's you know, Detroit and New York have all all have these like old warehouses being. You know, being just, repurposed, just repurposed or just abandoned. Well, they, need yeah. they need to be repurposed. They need to be repurposed. And why not just make a better robot that can use yeah. like that old factory instead of going somewhere and tearing up a bunch of yep. land to so, make a big building with no windows. I have two uh, nerd points from the article. One is a quote. Instead of designing a whole warehouse around the robots, you can build robots that are able to operate in our terms, in our space, in our environment. Mm. So I thought this was a very important shift in kind of mentality. Now, I wouldn't say it's 100% there, but it's definitely shifted there. The other idea that they talk about is um, the technology technologies related to automation. So there's huge companies that are investing a ton of it, right? So the analogy that they have is Netflix was the first, but now it's not the first, right? So there's Netflix was a pioneer in, um, you know, video content, right? If you turn around now, Netflix is obviously a pioneer in creating new content. They have a huge volume of content but in terms of video content distribution. There's a ton of other players. And so we're seeing a a uh, say a catch up we'll call it in terms of the affordability and the ability for other groups not to be a billion dollar entity to you know purchase um, and implement uh, automation uh, particularly warehouse automation that is state of the art so those are a uh, couple of interesting takeaways good job New York this Times cool. I appreciated that yeah um, <laughs> that's pretty good for New York Times <laughs> and the last one I have is real quick it's from TechCrunch and they talk about a startup oh. uh, it's a company called Fort and what they're doing is um, Ford Fort? F-O-R-T. Okay. For some reason, capitalized. I don't know what the deal is. Sure. It's uh, working to keep humans safe from industrial robots. Uh, I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> so they're providing a piece of equipment like emergency, wireless um, emergency stops, um, wireless controllers. <gasps> uh, a wireless e-stop? Right. So Why is that more not more a more common thing? I don't know. I love that. Uh, so the, the takeaway for me is, you know, their focus is um, human safety, which is great, but... Uh, in the article, they talk about cybersecurity principles to enable high, reliable communication to and from and between machines over any network. And I think that's an underlying um, principle that I'm very interested in because now they're talking about you know wireless communication and making sure that you know obviously no one can uh, uh, penetrate that wireless communication or hijack it or uh, override it because now it's a human safety. It's a critical uh, feature of of the automation. So you know not only are we obviously stepping towards 
making industrial robots more safe, which is great, but also the underlying technology of a secure uh, means to achieve that. So I, I really appreciate their steps towards including cybersecurity as part of their uh, design package for what they're producing. That is cool. That is cool. They think about both the securities. Yep. I love that you said human human safety, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have another article about humans in general. Yeah. So you got one that you yeah. talk about. So admittedly, this is like a two-year-old article. It came sure. from like July 28th of 2020, whatever. Um, but I, I, I'll promise I'll get to why it's relevant now. Um, well, not necessarily relevant now, but how it was shot across my bow. Sure. Um, from forconstructionpros.com. Hilti unveils the EXO-01 wearable exoskeleton. Yep. Um, so back in 2020, Hilti unveiled its new EXO-01 wearable exoskeleton at the National Safety Council, Congress, and Expo. Uh, the device is designed to help workers lift heavy objects with less strain on their bodies. Yep. Key words. Um, the exoskeleton is made of lightweight materials and is adjustable to fit a variety of body sizes. It includes sensors that monitor the user's body position and movement and provides feedback to the user to help them lift objects safely and efficiently. Maybe you can wear it at the gym. It'd be a little <laughs> expensive for a gym membership. Um, the device is powered by batteries and Hilti says it can be used for up to eight hours before needing to be recharged. That's cool. Cool. That's it's really all you need to know. If you want to learn more about this, just Google the EXO-01 wearable exoskeleton by Hilti. What I want to talk about is I was on, I recently became aware of this because of something I saw on LinkedIn. Yep. I'm scrolling through LinkedIn and I see a video because the, on social media videos play automatically for some reason, but right. they don't have any sound. Yep. So there's this dude wearing this Hilti exoskeleton and he's demoing it, what he can do. And he's holding like something big, <laughs> heavy, like, like impact driver, whatever sure. it is in one right. hand and constantly like lifting <laughs> it up and down. And this guy shows no strain, no, right. no like fatigue whatsoever doing this. It's, it's wild. Yep. Um, and I'm not listening to any words he's saying. Sure. And I find immediately the first comment I see, because naturally you see something like this and it's like, let's look for some negative comments. Sure. Uh, did not disappoint. <laughs> first comment that I see, which was clearly from somebody else that did not listen to the words. And even if they did, they probably couldn't understand them. But and I hate sounding like an old person, but this guy was probably really young. Sure. And he's like, I've got, I've got experience or I'm a construction worker. He's probably been a construction worker for three weeks. I've been working my whole life with heavy equipment and power tools. And I can say that you can save your money if you just work out this, this already existing technology called muscles. <laughs> and it's just like, dude, you're missing the point. Yeah. It's the fact that there are jobs at like not just construction jobs but like jobs at like boeing mm -hmm. like those i remember when we went to boeing and i know i can't stop talking about this i apologize but there are uh these jobs at boeing that require humans to ha handle these big heavy rivet guns yep. and they have to work in a partnership so they work with another human who does the same, is doing the same thing on the opposite side of the wall of the fuselage right. to them. So they can't see them, but they're working on the opposite side of this this plane's wall. Right. Yep. And they have to do the exact same motion at the exact same time. 
and do it for, you know, seven and a half hours a day, let's right. say maybe more, yep. you know, especially since everybody wants that OT. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, this takes a toll on their bodies right. and their expensive workers. And just like construction work, construction workers are paid a lot. Right. You know why construction workers are paid so much? They take a beating. It's because they take a beat because they can't do that their whole life. Right. Sure. Will you make more than like, you know, somebody that's fresh out of college that's working an office job and has student loan debt and is making half as much as you are. But they can work in that same office job with zero promotions their entire life. Right. Without any fatigue on their body whatsoever other than mental <laughs> that's true uh, but there's no robot for that <laughs> but uh, there's no robot or automation to help with that well there's automation to help with that but it's not it's not explicitly designed for right. that and that's what this stuff is designed for yeah, yes yeah. you know and you know that raises a couple of good points right and in terms of where we are in understanding technology when we get to like assemblies there's still a level of finesse that requires a human input like your scenario with the riveting and you know just putting parts together sometimes Automation may not be the best solution or unachievable. Yeah. So yes, there's always a need for humans. Even as far as technology will get us today in the next bunch of years, humans are still much more capable, much more resilient in a lot of ways. And it's not even that there's always a need for humans that it's that there's in few cases, there is a need for right. humans right. full stop. Right. Not always, but there just, there still is right. a need for humans. Yep. And if robots and we robots have come a long way. Yeah. If robots still aren't good enough to do these, these human roles, instead of trying to design the robot to do this role, why don't you design the robot, to, the robot to make the human better? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a growing design principle. So a, a couple of years ago, I read a couple of research reports and they talked about uh, human fatigue as a design principle. So when you're designing your industrial process, right, you're looking at throughput, you're looking at quality, you're looking at reducing number of steps, uh, you're embedding as much as you can to reduce the seven layers of waste. But they also started thinking about, okay, if a human has to pick this up, how much strain is on their hands, mm. right? How much strain is on their back just shuffling parts in their process? And I think that's that's a growing idea and a growing concept that we need to be able to quantify the impact on humans and understand that, you know, are we going to ask them to do this six hours a day, you know, take away time for meetings and breaks and stuff like that? And what's their toll on the body as opposed to what's the toll on your piece of equipment? You know, we just talked about uh, tool wear, you know, the underlying principle, what's human wear and how do we start quantifying that? Yeah. So I think there's some really interesting ideas, you know, unfortunately that construction dude probably is always going to miss it's the young, point. You know, and there's always, I'm still there. There's always an audience of. <laughs> This technology, we, we always did it before. We can keep doing it that way. That's not the point. The point is we want to do stuff faster, better, smarter. And there is technology that's going to get us there. And, you know, I think Hilti's massive, right? So they're yeah. um, being able to get to that point. And there's a lot of other exoskeletons out there. And we briefly mentioned, obviously, the one from Aliens that hopefully someday will exist. Oh, yes. <laughs> the Caterpillar P5000 Power Loader. Caterpillar's a real company, even though <laughs> Alien and Xenomorphs and Wayland yutani Corp are not real. <laughs> Caterpillar is real and they might, you know, in the P5000 power loader is not real yet, but it's the keywords yet. Do you think they are reserving that part number for the future? I don't. So <laughs> I don't think they have. I genuinely don't think they have, but okay. they should. They should. I think they should be a, a bookmark saying don't use this just yet. <laughs> Every day we get closer to them needing that trademark more and more. <laughs> um, but no. I will say this. I will close that article with this yep. thought. 
Hilti also makes regular power tools. Yeah. Like not just like manufacturing equipment. They do both. Sure. But I'll tell you this. Seeing this kind of innovation, the mm-hmm. next time I go reach, have to go to Home Depot or Lowe's for a power tool, I'm getting a Hilti. Oh, wow. I don't see this kind of stuff from Black & Decker. Fair. Or Milwaukee. <laughs> or, you know, Craftsman. Craftsman's not even made in the U.S. anymore. That's unfortunate. Hilti, though, at least they're innovating in the U.S. That's true. Steve, where can they find more info about us? amtonline.org slash resources. Go there to listen to more episodes just like this or subscribe to my weekly tech report. <laughs> That's a good plug. Our weekly tech report. Excuse <laughs> me. Ben and Ben writes them every now and then. Every now and then. I pitch him. When I'm tired. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.